0: From Matthew sixteen, a familiar passage, and uh, this relates to our topic today as does first Peter five. So first of all, hear this, Matthew sixteen, thirteen. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea, Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. A related passage to the office of leadership in the church, 1 Peter 5. Listen here also to this same Peter who was spoken to there in Matthew, now decades later, a mature man of God, a mature apostle, I know because we are not uh, a building served by very much in the way of public transportation except a random bus here and there, that most of you depended on an automobile to transport you to this building this morning. And yet I'm asking you to think how many of you actually gave any kind of thought to the operation of that car's engine. It might be somebody's driving a 20- or 30-year-old beater that can't be relied upon to start. But I suspect not too many. Most of you got in your car, turned the key, drove to church, I hope uneventfully. You didn't think about whether there'd be a bad spark plug or a piston problem or a dead battery. And that's the way engine problems are. If If the engine is working right, We give it no thought, and yet it's absolutely vital to transport us. I can tell you that in my 40 years of involvement in churches and presbyteries, I have found that leadership of churches are somewhat like car engines that way. If gifted and godly leadership has a grasp on their calling and is serving humbly and wisely, then it seems that the local church generally at least functions smoothly. And its people rarely think about what its elders are doing. They probably think they're not doing much of anything. But I've also observed times when as a presbyter in particular, I've been involved in churches that are in crisis or in chaos where there are people who are angry and hurt and broken and at their wit's end with one another And I can stand back and think that in many, if not most, of those situations, in some way or other, there was a malfunctioning church leadership engine in the middle of the crisis. Either leaders had been unable to control or resolve a problem that people in the church raised, or it has to be admitted, there are many occasions when the leaders themselves might have been partly responsible for causing the difficulty that wounds and hurts the church. Today, we're considering the last of a series of six messages in which I've sought to encapsulate big topics into one message. To consider God's grace in salvation in one message is almost an absurdity, but we tried to do it. To consider the covenant of God in one message is ridiculous theologically, but we tried to do it. And you can look in your bulletin and see these things that I said are topics or characteristic attitudes and interpretations of Scripture characteristic of churches that are called Reformed churches. The absolute sovereignty of God, the supreme authority of Holy Scripture, salvation by grace through faith alone, one covenant uniting God's people in old and new Testaments. Last week, Bible doctrine, I said, summarized in historic creeds that are secondary in authority to the Scripture. This week, we look at this topic, church government by local elders, because elders are the office that we see specifically displayed in the New Testament church leading, guiding, and governing the people of God, and they are the only primary office of leadership. That the New Testament exemplifies. Reformed churches, almost without exception, reject the idea of monarchical bishops from outside of a congregation or anyone with any other name ruling a local congregation from the outside. We don't see that happening in the New Testament. In fact, when the New Testament gives us an example of how Christ's flock in localities were Led and guided, it was by elders in each congregation. Primarily elders from chosen from among that congregation, although other elders would come and perhaps tour a district like a Timothy or someone, Titus, who would go and help to lead and resolve problems. Never just one elder, in fact. Almost always a plurality. That's a big word for several. Several elders together together working to exercise the rule of Christ. There were voices in the 16th century Reformation that tried to give definition to the question, what is a true church versus what is a false church? And, of course, the contention was that there were those that were falsely representing Christianity, and we had to know, well, when do you know when a church is false, when it has really forsaken its heritage And not to oversimplify things, but the Reformers came up with three primary marks of a true church that they handed on to us, and we think they were really on track with this because many times today we would still say, here are three things that define a true church. Number one, that it preaches and teaches the biblical doctrine of salvation, and that of course is by God's justifying grace through faith in Christ. Number two, that the church is able to practice the sacraments of the New Testament, baptism and the Lord's Supper, without corrupting those or twisting those into something other than the New Testament portrays them to be. And number three, a church, a true church, must be able to exercise discipline over its membership. Now, there's a lot more involved in in being an effectual church, but we say when one of those three goes… The church is on a slippery slope, if not already, losing its vital core identity. And it is leaders of the church who are responsible before God to see that these marks of the church are being maintained. There has to be leadership. And yet we face the fact that we live in an anti-leadership society, an anti-authority society. Society. You see it so well in the political realm. It's often observed how we love to elect leaders, and and you may vote for a leader. Now, you may also have leaders, of course, that you didn't vote for, but you may put a leader in office and you're enthusiastic and people are hopeful. This is the man, this is the woman. She's going to lead us to new places and do new things. And then all of a sudden, it seems like You know, the pack starts nipping at the leader's heels and people almost delight in bringing them down, the same ones they've elected. People today feel like leaders don't really know what they're doing and there's no no such thing as a, a competent leader at the local level, at the national level, at the church level. People will take vows. We had new members take vows last Sunday, quite a few of them, And they said, one of their vows, that they would submit to elders who are duly elected and ordained to lead them. Now, I'm not hoping this is true of any of those folks from last Sunday, but I do know in the broad sense, at least, that there are people who will take such a vow. And fine, that didn't mean too much to them when they said it, but let them come to a place in their lives where there's some gross and obvious sin that the elders come alongside and say, brother… There's something in your life here we have to talk to you about. This This cannot be compatible with Christian testimony. Let the elders do that, and you quickly find out whether that vow of submitting to elders is going to be real or not. And we've been told with a curse that, what are you doing? You don't have any business talking to me about that. Who do you think you are? By people who said, we will submit to the elders. We admit that the Bible does not provide a detailed manual for how a church should be governed, but it actually is surprising that there are more principles and guidelines than you might think, and they all begin with the understanding that the proper leadership of the church is the leadership of elders. Several things I want to say. First of all, today I say that rule over God's redeemed people originally belongs to Christ who delegates it to the hands of fallible human beings. It originally belongs to Christ. He delegates it. We, you say, well, sure, you have to acknowledge that, don't you? That's a formal thing that you need to say. We need to say that more than formally. We need to mean it. It is Christ who rules the church. In Advent, you undoubtedly at some point will hear the prophecy of Isaiah 9, 6 that says, the government would be upon the shoulder of the one who would come the government of his people first and foremost ephesians 122 has the new testament statement that god has put all things under the feet of christ and made him to be head of his body the church colossians 118 has a statement after that past that chapter talks about christ being the one who holds everything in creation together, 118 says he's head of his body, the church. Christ and Christ alone has the rulership, the dominion of his people. Any other leadership is obviously and always leadership delegated by him. Well, we see this in the main text I read for you from Matthew 16 where Jesus was speaking to peter and said i will build whose church my church i'm going to build it and you and others like you will have a role you need to see the context you know we're always insisting that you read scripture in context if there's any verse of the new testament you could take out of context it's the statement in matthew 16 that people have so badly taken out of context. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. So, Peter, you're in charge. You're the man. You're it. No. The context of the passage is Peter's epic confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The whole passage revolves around that confession once Peter had confessed that, and then you need to know that was really the first time that any of the immediate followers of Jesus had said that out loud in those particular words, and the others were there listening. And Jesus heard that confession and said, Peter, I'm building my church, and I'm going to need to delegate. Those who will confess what you have confessed are the rock on which I will build. You have done this, Peter. You and others like you will be the ones who will receive the keys, as Jesus called them, of the kingdom, the ability to literally make decisions that I will endorse. This was not given to Peter as an individual. It was given to the confessing Peter who confessed, you are the Christ, son of the living God. And of course, the other apostles who heard that soon joined in, and they too were given that charge, the charge that Peter received. By the way, I think it's very interesting as I pair these two passages, and I'll come to First Peter 5 in a minute, but if you would just glance ahead and see how Peter, the older Peter, several decades later, after being given this charge, addresses others that he writes to. First Peter 5.1, he says, I write as your fellow elder. He does not write... As their supreme pontiff commanding them, he writes as their fellow elder. You know, the idea that God would even delegate the authority of Jesus Christ as king of the head of the church to any human being, be he Peter or John or Matthew or an elder today serving in this church, ought to be something that constantly amazes us. And I would say those who ought to be the most amazed would be the elders themselves. Imagine that one of you had a a child and that child is now, let's say, three years old, and along comes baby number two. And mom delivers that baby, and now the baby's home and it's two months old, and mom for the first time feels well enough and says to her husband, I'd love to go out for could we go out for dinner together? It'd be wonderful just to have an evening without these children. Having to take care of the Moms get stir-crazy. Having to be in the house. And dad says, sure, let's do it. Let's go. Our three-year-old can take care of the situation. We'll just put three-year-old Johnny in charge of his little sister Brenda and everything will be fine. Why, no right-thinking parent would do that. And As a matter of fact, you could go to jail for doing that. The authorities, if they knew you were doing that, would move in and child welfare would take your children away. Well, stop and think. The eternal God has given that which his son, the eternal Lord, has dominion over into the hands of human beings, be they an apostle or an elder today, and said, through you I will govern. My fellow elders, are you amazed? Are you humbled? You certainly ought to be. God has done a great thing. But yet, here's the thing. He hasn't simply left us. He hasn't walked away as those parents do, leaving the three-year-old to cope with any emergency. No. God, by his Holy Spirit, indwells the lives of those charged to lead the church. And therefore, King Jesus is with us. He hasn't really left us. His power, his wisdom, his spirit is with us those whom he delegates to lead, and he rules through us. Secondly, this point, and it's just extending the first. From the time of the death of the apostles onward, it was elders in each local church who were God's appointed leaders. Now, first we had the apostles. They were unique. There are no apostles today. You, account- you encounter some church sign that says, John Jones, apostle, pastor, pastor, Keep driving. Don't turn in. There are no apostles today. The office of apostle was unique for God to establish his church and give the scriptures of the New Testament. And they then delegated, in a further way, what had been delegated to them. To whom did they delegate? To elders. Now, you know, we could have seen in the New Testament, and you're welcome to look in the book of Acts or other places where the apostles went, Philippi, Ephesus, Thessalonica, and look for the passage where they said, all right, we've got a church organized here. We've got 20, 30, 50 people meeting around the word of God, and after all, You're all one in Christ. Your salvation is equal, whether you're male or female, slave or free. You're equally saved by Christ. There's no differentiation in that, in the grace of salvation you've received. Therefore, I decree, says Paul or Barnabas, just have town meetings to govern the church. And don't let anybody be over anybody else. I don't want it that way. You show me where that gets done. Nowhere. What did they do? They appointed elders in every church that they founded. Acts 14:23 would be a typical place reporting Paul and Barnabas who appointed elders in every church, not just one church, committing them to the Lord with prayer and fasting. Now, someone who's biblically knowledgeable is going to come back at me and say, "Now wait a minute, you Presbyterian, you're not telling the whole truth." Weren't there bishops somewhere in there? As a matter of fact, the word bishop does appear. Episcopos, bishop, does appear about three or four times. I haven't given it an exact count. I don't think it's more than that in the New Testament. But here's how it appears Titus 1 5 to 7 is an example where the same men are called elder in verse 5 and bishop in verse 7. They're not different people, they're two names for the same leaders. The elders are bishops and the bishops are elders. The New Testament nowhere, nowhere, has any example of what we think of as a bishop. You know, man with a big staff, shepherd's crook, funny hat on his head, lots of authority over many churches in a region, making decisions for many Christians whom he may not even know particularly well. That is a development in the history of the church that can be traced as, of course, some church centers like Rome and Constantinople were highly populous and and had more authority, more ministers, more people moving about, and gradually, gradually, their key leaders got more power. That was a worldly development, not a scriptural development. We've got a few church historians with us like Dr. Nichols and others who I'm sure would be glad to give you a sketch of that development, but it came over centuries. And sadly, it was something that followed patterns more of worldly power and politics than of the example or the exhortation of the word of God. The word of God in the New Testament shows that elders, and you mostly know, I think most of you know, that the name of an elder in Greek in the New Testament is a presbyter, a presbyteros. So you find out what we're named for were named for the rule by elders. And this was not just something that was done once upon a time as a nice idea. We think it was God's pattern for all time. There's a wisdom of balance in this system. You see, you avoid the extreme of leaving sort of the mob in charge and saying, okay, there are 200 Christians in this town. Just have the town meeting and see whose voice is the loudest and what opinion prevails. Well, how does the 51% get everybody else to do something? That's one way you could go, and churches do go that way. Of course, there's the other extreme where you could say, all right, George, you're in charge. You make all the decisions, all by yourself. What happens then? George is going to become a proud man. He has to, because he's a sinner. And he's a sinner in charge of other sinners, so you're going to have him almost inevitably becoming the chief of sinners because he's going to think that his opinion is somehow more God's opinion than everybody else's. There's a danger. So what do you do? You look for a middle way, and that's what God did. From among the wisest, the most mature, you put together a small council. They're from the local body so they can have compassion on the people. They're not governing people that they're far distant from and don't even know. They know the brokenness and the issues of a, of a local body of believers. And they have, as they interact, that ability of, to do what the Scripture says, iron sharpening iron. I've been among other elders long enough to see this and to have my own pride knocked down or shot out of the sky or whatever you want to say. As I came into the room thinking, here's the wonderful idea, men. I'm sure you're going to love it. Guess what? They didn't love it. As a matter of fact, they hated it. They said, that's a terrible idea. And I had to swallow my pride and say, there's more wisdom in this room than what walked in the door when my pair of shoes entered the room. Iron sharpens iron. Godly men as they pray and submit to one another, can do some wonderful things together. God is in their midst. First Timothy 3 and Titus 1, of course, give us the qualities needed in elders. I don't have time to dwell on that much, but just the idea that they must be men of the Scripture. They must know what the Scripture says. It says they must be able to teach, both in explicit ways as well as by their life example. They must have strong character. Most of the emphasis is on their character. If they're married, they have to be faithful to their wife. If they have young children at home, those children should be under their obedience. They should have a good reputation. Someone from the community shouldn't be able to come in and say, Are you kidding? Do you have John Doe as an elder in your church? Do you know he's infamous in the business community? Well, that disqualifies an elder. Those outside need to see him as a person of integrity. Now, it does not say they're perfect. Let me tell you, we like it when we approach someone for the office of elder for the first time, and that individual says, Me? Are you kidding? Me? Be an elder? We think that's the right reaction, as a matter of fact. The reaction we don't want to hear is, I've been waiting for you for a long time. I wondered when you'd get around to asking me. That's a reaction of pride. The Scripture does say that while elders are one office, ruling, and teaching, there is that proper differentiation. 1 Timothy 5.17 draws a clear differentiation, seeming to say that some have a greater gift and greater training to be pastors, teachers. We call them teaching elders. The others are ruling elders, equally important. Their vote counts just as much. They're vital. But it's firmly implied that the two occupy a slightly different role. There's so much that could be said about the duties of elders. I'm going to be content with the very concise statement of 1 Peter 5, 1 and following for today. And I say again, Peter was writing there to his fellow elders. It's explicit in the text. Here's what he said Shepherd the flock. There's one duty. Shepherd them. Care for them. Nurture them. Protect them. Shepherd the flock of God, exercising oversight. Don't do it under compulsion. Do it willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering but being examples. That tells us not only what the work is, but the spirit in which the work gets done. A Christ-like, humble, but wise spirit. You know, you give any man a title, put a title on his door, you can't help but be proud that you have a title. I think somewhere in a file cabinet drawer I still have the the, from my first church a long time ago, the, the little bakelite sign that was put on a slot on the door, Reverend Michael Rogers, pastor. Wow, I'm the pastor. Well, let me tell you, I'm not sure what that piece of plastic would sell for, but that's about how much it's worth. Authority to lead does not come from a sign on the door or a name on the letterhead, or an election by the congregation. It comes from the approbation of God who puts his spirit in men who would humble themselves and lead in the place of Christ. And that ought to be something that would constantly bring us low as leaders. Pride is a leader's sin in particular. But yet when we recognize who the king of the church is, we should be able to see ourselves at the low end of that food chain of authority. Now, finally, this quickly, I say in the third place, that healthy congregations result from elders ruling jointly and humbling in the place of Christ. We act as a doctrinal screen. We talked about creeds last week. These are, the elders are asked to subscribe to the creed. Their theology is tested a lot closer than yours. As a member, you are asked to profess Christ and to submit to belonging to the body. The elders are asked, do you agree to a whole system of doctrine set forth in a creed as faithfully representing the Scripture? These men have got to filter teaching and watch who teaches and watch who leads. And if they do that well in a local church, the engine runs. And you won't even think very much about what they're doing because it's happening as it should happen. You won't too often say, I wonder what the elders are up to. But Maybe by this reminder today, you'd be reminded to pray for us once in a while. Because all the time and often when you don't have any idea of it, there are times when we have to do the really hard things. We have to discipline the flock of God. Pray for Pastor Light Pastor Light is a point man for discipline when he's in the counseling office. and People are there from this congregation, with marriages that are deeply troubled and deeply flawed, relationships and problems, getting along with other people, relating in business, and he has to confront them and he has to show them the word and he has to even rebuke them pastorally. We hope that we don't have to have formal process of discipline. But when that comes, sometimes it does. And that even goes on without you knowing about it. The only time you're going to know about it, as you, many of you realize, is if someone was to be excommunicated, the final, most somber sentence. That's what binding and loosing ultimately is about. If the elders decide that someone is assaulting the honor of Christ the honor of God's word and is unrepentant, unwilling to bow, there comes that hard time, sober time. We hate to do it, but we will do it because our office requires us to do it. I believe God calls elders in his church to be what one man of God, Leighton Ford, has called transformational leaders. A transformational leader is someone who, first of all, himself has been transformed by the new birth of God's grace through faith in Jesus and the inhabitation of the Holy Spirit in him. He's been transformed into a new vessel that God can use. But more than that, he becomes someone who can help or at least be used by God. We don't help God, but we're in the place to be used by him. So the king of the church can act through us to proclaim the gospel, to, to exercise discipline and wise decisions so others will become transformed by the Holy Spirit and the new birth. Well, I've sought, I know, very inadequately to show you these past weeks that a Reformed church stands somewhat apart from other Christians. Not that we don't fellowship. I've said this repeatedly. Go, don't go away without hearing it. We fellowship with anyone who says Jesus is Lord in some way. Now, there are different levels of fellowship. There are people we can cooperate with very closely doctrinally and others that maybe we would make common cause and say opposing abortion in the public square or something like that. We fellowship with anyone who says Jesus is Lord. We stand apart somewhat in being rigorously God-centered. We're not that interested in human desires to say, all right, how can we please a crowd and get 5,000 people in here to enjoy some light devotional entertainment that has a Christian veneer to it. We are interested in evangelism. We're always evangelizing, but we're doing it knowing that salvation originates with an all-sovereign God whose grace is the motive power that changes human hearts. You know that just days ago we were marking in this country the anniversary of the Gettysburg Address, and of course it was in the news a lot in this local area. Once again, people being reminded of that noble speech of Lincoln that when it was given was hardly paid any attention at all. 72 words. Let me tell you, it's awfully hard. I can, I can actually tell you because computers give me an understanding. I've used about 2,200 words today. Lincoln used 72. And he captured the core of the ideals and the mission and the vision of a nation in the hour of its greatest crisis. Well, I can tell you one thing, and we mentioned it earlier in this series, that in fewer than 72 words, captures the whole vision of the Reformed faith. And those are the words of Paul at the end of Romans in 1136 When he had stated over many chapters the sweeping, marvelous work of God's grace in salvation. And he came to that one sentence that he said of Christ, from Him, through Him, unto Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever and forever. Amen. Our Father, I pray today that you would give us a new sight of your grandeur and your sovereignty, a new appreciation of your grace at work. We were helpless and dead in our sins until you awakened us. Give us not an ounce of arrogance, about being better Christians than anyone else. But make us care about doctrine, about your covenant, about the leadership of our church. Drive us to prayer that you would work, great God, in a marvelous way in these times, even through us. For Jesus' sake, amen.